Welcome to the VoxGig podcast. We talk to people in the developer community about developer relations, public speaking, and community events. For more details, visit voxgig.com slash podcast. All right, let's get started. What is the one thing your company can do that will take the pain out of measuring developer relations? Rob Kaminsky, my guest today, has the answer. As a DevRel, you are expected to hit code, community, and content delivery all the time, every day. If your company takes a scattergun approach to marketing, to messaging, to positioning, then of course you're going to be overworked. In our discussion today, Rob talks about how his company, FletchPMM.com, helps startups, SaaS startups in particular, understand how to position themselves in the market so that they have a single, clear, coherent message. And that can then feed back into your activities as a developer advocate so that everything makes sense. If you do this, suddenly the measurement questions become a lot easier and connecting the dots between your activities and the value that they bring is suddenly obvious. Let's talk to Rob. Rob, welcome. It is great to have you here on the Fireside with Fox Gig podcast talking about positioning. Uh, and before you start, before you say anything, uh, I cannot resist reading out uh, the very first sentence on your website, which I think is kind of awesome. Uh, SaaS messaging is garbage. Make yours not suck. Uh, what a, that's that's that. <laughs> How many SaaS companies need that? Right. That is that is just so cool. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a jolt. Um, we were pretty. Uh, we were laughing about it when we created it, and to some extent, we were even breaking some of our rules about being clear of what you should say in your homepage. But uh, we feel that we overcompensate with that with what we do on LinkedIn. So by the time yeah. people get to our site, they already kind of know what we're about. So we get to have a little bit of fun when they come to our website. Okay, so let's let's rewind. Let, let's let's get a little serious. So what does Fletch do? Yeah, so Fletch, we're a small consultancy. Uh, I co-founded it with my partner, Anthony Pieri, and we only do website messaging. And so we work with B2B SaaS startups and we help them craft their homepage and landing page messages. And that's it. So it's B2B that you focus on. Okay. Yeah, it is our focus. Ah, okay. So as opposed to B2C. Uh, so I'm, I've always been a B2B guy. Uh, I, I'd be super scared of doing a b2c startup uh b2c SaaS. uh i i think it's way yeah. harder right b2b would you agree b2b is kind of easier i think the markets are just they're more yeah. mature they've got money to spend uh they're a little bit easier to slice and dice you're not dealing with demographics and you're not competing with all these different things so yeah i would agree with you yeah um okay so we're still not getting kind of to the heart of the matter um because I'm just thinking about my personal journey to discovering positioning uh, and what it is, right? And if you're just hearing that word for the first time, you're thinking, oh, it's just marketing jargon, whatever, right? Um, <laughs> just write more copy, do more blog posts, right? <laughs> do some meetups. But, you know, that, uh, that's uh, that's kind of cool. Um, but when I think back on all the companies that I founded, I would say one of the critical flaws is that I and my uh, other founders would never have really sat down and worked at positioning. Um, in fact, sorry, I, I, <laughs> I've got to go so far as to say that uh, if you can find this on YouTube, there are recordings of me on Irish national television trying to explain what my uh, B2B microservices-based consultancy did for companies. Okay. <laughs> failing utterly. I think I tried to use... Uh, the invention of the steam engine is some sort of disastrous metaphor. Um, but the, the, the base, the base, the, the root cause was I did absolutely no planning, no thinking. There was no position, right? Hmm. Uh, so, okay. So just take it up from first principles, right? Why is this, this marketing thing so valuable? Yeah. I mean, when we look at positioning, fundamentally, it's about how you're approaching a market. And so what the heck does that mean? It, it really breaks down to who is your product for and what would they use it for? 
And it sounds so simple, yeah. but it's such yeah. a complex thing. And so positioning, it's interesting to even hear you talk about like, we didn't do any positioning. I would argue you did positioning. You just didn't realize that you did it haphazardly, right? Because positioning is, it's kind of folds into your product strategy. It folds into, you know, the channels you start to select. It's that initial approach. And, and so we look at it as like the fundamental building block of like, why did you even build what you, you're building in the first place? And why should anyone care about it? But uh, as far as executing positioning, that's not so simple because there is no one perfect way. Um, even you know April Dunford, who's you know world renowned for yeah. her model and positioning. One of the things I love that she says is like, you don't have to follow my model as long as you do it right. And and so what she's really saying is as long as you're being mindful about your market and your customers, what problems do they have, and then building a product that's going to meet what they're dealing with. Then it's really just like, how do we express that? How do we communicate that? And that's where we're jumping down into messaging. And yeah, what I've found, and we've worked with you know, almost 100 B2B startups now in Fletch, the ones that are being delivered about it have such a leg up for how they're differentiating themselves. They grow faster, they build better products, they make more money. Uh, and I think, especially in a day where it's really easy to build software now, all the tools yeah. are accessible yeah. to everyone. Things are crowded. And so the only way you really can differentiate and stand out is with positioning, is with this thing mar called marketing, which I know developers <laughs> hear that and they go, oh shit, I don't know a damn thing about marketing. Like, can I still build a startup? Yeah, and it, and it is it, it is super powerful. And you, you, you say, okay, I was doing positioning. I just wasn't being explicit about it. Um, and you're dead right, right? And that positioning came from... Uh, yeah, I, I don't know, being, uh, being the community organizers around a certain technology, um, and being the first in Europe to do that. Uh, yeah. and that was, that was kind of the positioning. So it gave us legitimacy. And you certainly had some thesis of who that was for. And, and that yeah, fundamentally yeah, yeah. is like, a, it's the big half of the equation. And so but we never put it on the website. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny <laughs> you say problem, that right? <laughs> writing uh, it down is powerful because where and we see this all the time is founders have what we call a curse of knowledge you work on everything with your product you spend so much time with customers where you actually see it all and you know it all but that's great that's all in your head if you don't take action to write it down to put it on your website to alter the roadmap then your positioning is really it's you're not positioning you're like preventing yourself from making a choice that's going to then have implications on all the choices you make in your day-to-day -day operations. And it's super hard as a founder to avoid doing that. Like you say, you have this curse of knowledge totally. and, and an enthusiasm which needs to be <laughs> dialed down yeah. a little bit. Uh, from the perspective of developer relations, right? So our, our a lot of our audience are developer advocates, leaders in developer relations. Uh, we're fighting with this every day because if the founders of our company haven't really defined positioning, um, what happens to a lot of DevRels is that they end up burnt out because start a meetup, to speak at a conference, write a blog post, do some code samples, build a community, uh, set up a Slack, no, a Discord, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, if you if you if you listen to some of the things that uh, people are asked to do as as an initial hire, in a you know the startup might might have they might have closed a, a decent uh, seed or whatever. They've got like 10 people. It's a developer tools company primarily. Uh, so they, they hire DevRel because they know they need to have one. And that person is expected to do the work of an entire team with no positioning. Uh, okay, so my, my, my challenge to you is uh, <laughs> that, de that, that developer advocates finds you guys and they're like, okay, I've got this is salvation. And somehow they managed to persuade the founder, CEO, that positioning needs to be done. Uh, so where do you start, right? When you, when you walk in the door, how, how do you, do you have a process that you follow to get from a sort of random website that I would have had yeah. <laughs> to yeah, we something do. that's positioned? We do indeed. We always start with, especially for developers and that are building a tool for developers. It's like, why did you build this thing in the first place? What were you trying to do? And what starts to come out of their answer is usually a combination of like, well, 
I was in this situation. I was trying to do this one thing. And when they describe it that way, we're like, okay, there's like the first use case they were addressing. What they go on to say is like, this was the role I was in. These are the people I think it could help. And we start to pick up like, okay, here's who might care about it. Where things get really messy is because you're building a developer tool. What usually happens is you're building a tool that could build other things. Now, that's an oversimplification. But the issue is other things sometimes means anything. And so where the biggest struggle we see with developer companies is that you're basically your core value prop is, hey, I built this thing that lets you build other things. The issue, the rub, if you will, of that, people want to build different stuff. And so it's not just good enough to say, hey, I can That's build nasty. things. There's a lot yeah. of tools out there. It's like, I'm like, you have to, and, and this is where I think the community piece comes in and, and beyond community is just being really specific of like, what is this thing really good at building? Like, and the more granular you go, the more resonance you'll like, the more signal that'll get picked up by the developer community. If in fact that situation happens, like yeah. I really am struggling to connect these two things, right? It's kind of speaking in the abstract. If someone's struggling to connect to those, they will listen to you, right? And that's why the community model is so prevalent because it's like developers helping other developers. And is there a subtlety here? Uh, yeah. Which is, are you talking about focusing on a developer community? So I don't know, let's say Python developers who then use the tool to build anything. So is the positioning to focus on Python developers as the users of your system, let's say? Or is it, a focus, uh, a positioning on the outcome, on what gets built. So it doesn't matter what language you're using, you're focusing on, okay, you're going to build, uh, I don't know, uh, software that helps the logistics industry yeah. or something. So like there's that. a couple so things. Which side here. is it? So we, we're a believer. When you talk about outcomes, we're, we're pretty contrary in our model. Mm. They matter, but you shouldn't lead with them. There's this counterintuitive notion of outcomes in that they're very personal to the person who has them. And so there's this interesting thing that we've noticed, and it was one of the foundational pieces of why we launched Fletch and even going back to why B2B SaaS messaging is terrible, is somewhere along the line, there were people picked up on the hook of, we should be messaging on outcomes. And like, hey, you can get more revenue, you can add more customers, you can scale this, you can scale that. And it's not that those things are important doesn't tell me what your thing does. And what you're effectively doing is you are telling the prospect why they should care when the, their actual motivations are maybe very personal to them. And we'll, we'll walk out some examples on that. And so our view, going back to your core question, is like, do we? is it about outcomes or is it about... And we think it's about the, what I'm about to share is finding specific criteria. So you brought up Python developers. I love that as a specific criteria because it already centers us around their situation. It helps us with terminology. It lays the foundation for like, well, which use cases, what types of things would I build with Python? And it just orients us on delivering a message that they might care about. Hey, okay. So let's get back to the process. I mean, I've been in a lot of situations where you bring in external consultants and you do a whole bunch of meetings uh you know you know if your if your company was a car what type of car would it be uh but to which the only correct answer is a tesla roadster <laughs> nice. uh well maybe not anymore uh so i mean do you guys follow that sort of process or do you do you, so we have a process a but even when when you talk about like even analogies and like what are you for what you're really getting into is brand marketing. And yeah. we we see ourselves as product marketers, which I'm not saying we're anti-brand marketing, but when it comes to early stage B2B SaaS companies, our belief is that no one competes on brand, not in the early stage. Yeah, Brand marketing comes in after you have an initial wave of success. And as a product category matures and it, and it gets more like, oh, we know who the leaders are, then you can start pulling the lever of, your belief system, your tone of voice, your attitude, like all the things that are like make you unique on a kind of like transcending the product level. And that's a huge mistake we see early on, right? Like when, when you have no success and you're still trying to find fit and you're trying to compete on brand, no one cares because they don't even know what you do. They don't know who you are. So the idea that you can convince them because you 
have a flashy logo and you stand for something like that's not what your early adopters at these companies are even looking for in the first place. Wow. Yeah. Now that you pointed out. Yeah. Yeah. I see, I see that <laughs> a so lot as well. In yeah. our process, going like to your question, we, we've really just come back to like, what are the core basics? So the first question, like I said, who are you building this thing for? That ends up setting the table and, and any founder will know that like when you first start, you sort of know, but then you start building and you share it with some customers and then customer B says like, well, hey, I want this thing. So you build that thing and you share it. And then customer C says, I want this thing. And before you know it, you built all this stuff. And what's happening from a market perspective is you're actually solving different use cases and different problems and different sub problems. And what happens from a positioning and messaging standpoint is you build those up even within a short period of time, three, six, nine months, you have this collection of like, wow, we built stuff that's sort of solving all these different problems. And there's this tendency to say, hey, the more we build, the more valuable we get. Big mistake. The more you build, it's actually the more it's going to pull apart not only your product roadmap, but then who the heck would use this thing? And this is probably the fundamental issue we see, especially with development companies that are like, you could build anything. It's like the, the go-to-market programs that actually power those need to be so narrow. It's like, well, I'm trying to build a CRM. I'm trying to build a data pipeline. I'm trying to build a this. And like each one of those recipients, those prospects needs to hear something different, even if they're going to end up using the same core product. So would you have gone to companies where the websites have a big long list of features and ask them to remove features not not from the product but from their from their yeah. messaging just just 100%. don't 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 talk about that okay that's 100%. really cool but don't talk I'll about even it. go beyond I'll even go beyond <laughs> the, like remove features like and, and we're not saying don't bring them up like you you said it best like you don't lose them it's just about finding the right place to introduce them what we end up removing the most is multiple targets, multiple products, multiple use cases. Because when people go to a website, I mean, there's a lot of mistakes they make, but when people go to a website, they're usually not shopping for this large collection. So like a developer tool, in a lot of cases, like we said, can build a lot of different things. No one comes to the site and says, I'm here to build a lot of different things. And so when you start listing, you could build this, you could build this, you could build this, and we've got this feature and this feature, and there's this benefit of doing it this way, you're going to overwhelm them. You're going to put friction into their experience of like, hey, I'm just here to solve this like very specific data flow, data connectivity issue I have, whatever it may be. And you're they're not going to dig through your site. And that's yeah. another important piece. No one reads your site. They skim it. Yeah. And so if you're not clear, <laughs> if you if you can't nail your headlines and sections for them to go, oh, this is for me. I get what they do. And then get them to explore further, you've already lost them from a message. Uh, that, that's why I, I I did like to read out what was on your homepage because to me it does something uh it does that, but it does something interesting in addition uh from a sales perspective for you guys, which is you immediately disqualify people who don't know they have the problem. And I'm sure the market exactly. of people who know that they have the problem is still pretty big, right? Uh, yes. And they're going to be open Oh, it's such to... a huge one. And, and it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's interesting. Actually, it's such an important point because we there's this piece, especially when you're early, you'll talk to anyone. Well, you have the title that we serve. Let's talk. Yeah. And the reality is like they're probably not in market for what you need. And if you find yourself having to convince them they have the problem and they should do things... Not only is it going to be like pulling teeth, but they're definitely going to be a terrible customer because they weren't trying to solve that in the first place. And then the yeah. worst part is you'll probably start bending your product or in our case, our service to deliver value for them. And then you're all over the place. Then you lose repeatability, you lose scalability, and it's just not going to work. So I love I love that you picked up on that. Yeah, We don't want people to come to us that are like, yeah. hey, build my sales deck. It's like, no, come on. We're we're going to write your website. Sales deck is a whole another thing. Not saying it's not important. It, it yeah. is important in B two B, but yeah, I mean, I, again, I can think of. Yeah, I definitely did that. Uh, so, do you have? Are you able to talk about a case study? Maybe you don't have to mention the company's name, but one of your clients, where I guess is a really good example of uh, applying the the positioning techniques that you guys bring in. To to actually generate a great a great outcome, 
Yeah, let's uh, let's take a look. I'll just kind of bring up our list here. I probably can't name names, if you will. But let's get yeah, let's get conceptual. But let's get conceptual. If we can, if we can still make it a little bit concrete, I think that would because again, remember, most of our audience is ultimately coders, and this is alien. Yeah. Right. Okay, there's one. This actually, there's alien one stuff, here that's perfect. Right. So we worked with a group. They they have built a, I wouldn't necessarily call them a development tool, but they've built a an API with a large library uh, that enabled people to build. They're really geared towards e-commerce, and they're really focused in checkout checkout experiences. Yeah. Uh, and so when they came to us, they were initially you you went to their site and extremely technical they're using and and what, what and this happens a lot is they're they're building this sort of new way to handle e-commerce checkout and when they do that they're doing category creation so they use the terminology of like hey we're this unified all-in-one thing but it's like don't that's not really a known category we don't know what that is and then what was completely missing in their messaging is like when would i use this like they said the word e-commerce but e-commerce is a big thing like, are you handling fulfillment? Are you doing payment? Is it for checkout? Uh, is it certain types of checkout? Is it mobile? Like all of that was not there. And essentially like our work with them, the whole goal was like, how do we remove this fluff and just make it very clear who you're for and when someone would use you? And what's super interesting in this case, right? And this might be a little different than developer tools, but they're, despite the fact that their product was extremely technical, the people who are actually worried about building these better e-commerce experiences, and I'm, I'm keeping it a little vague just uh, yeah, yeah. from a client perspective, but the people who are focused on creating these great e-commerce experiences were actually fairly non-technical product leaders. And so when they're using all this language and literally showing code on the page, it's like product leader they're thinking in terms of a roadmap of like, I'm trying to turn on some functionality in my e-commerce experience. And so when they when we work through this, we had to sort of work through, because they're all developers, we had to work through their view on the technical view of why it's so great of what they're building and translate it in a way for the market to understand of like, yeah, the market doesn't really care about all your features. They just care what they can do with it. Yeah. And what ended up coming out of this was a very clear use case. And it was a very, very clear, like, and I could probably share this piece. It was for product leaders who are trying to add multi-merchant checkout into their uh, into their e-commerce site without a lot of custom code and hitching things together. And so they're just like, hey, if you're struggling with this multi-merchant, multi-platform thing, specifically in your cart for checkout, were the product for you. And so they nailed the situation and they it nailed seems the such a case. small market. I mean, it seems like it seems crazy, right? Because that's just a tiny little thing. You think so? That's the whole business. But then, you start, <laughs> but then you start to look at, like, and this is for them, they've built a lot of other stuff. And that's what usually gets in the way. It's like, so after they've built this integrated multi merchant checkout experience, there's these next level things that they can add in. And, and so, whether that's multi product or more usage that comes yeah. along with it. And so, it's just the entry point. And this is something in B2B SaaS that I've seen across the board. There's this, Everyone loves a platform. VCs love platforms. They see big TAMs. We say, oh, platform, it can do everything. The harsh reality for B2B, nobody buys a platform unless you're a Fortune 50 company where you say, I want to buy one product to do every single little thing. And even then, this is kind of interesting insight. I was chatting with the chief strategy officer at Bloomreach, ironically enough, another e-commerce yeah. CDP type piece. And big company. They've raised hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars of valuation. And what he shared with me is even for their platforms, and they kind of had multiple platforms. He's like, when people come to us, we start with a point solution. We can't sell the platform. We have to sell the product. We have to sell the use case. And like an example of use case was like, they do a lot of stuff in retail, especially with COVID when that transition was happening. Yeah. So there was a lot of heads of retail, heads of marketing at these brick and mortar stores saying, we need a mobile app to buy shoes or whatever whatever it is we're selling. That was like their use, like this point solution. It's like, we just need a mobile app. And like Bloomreach, 
they could build a bunch of stuff. They're a headless CMS meets an e-commerce platform, meets a customer data portal. They can do automate marketing automations, all these things. And so the messaging for them, like they just have to be specific. It's like, oh, you're trying to build a mobile app for your brick and mortar store? Start here. And then once they're in, you can sequence all these other messages, all these other products. Okay, so I am I'm just trying to structure this a little bit. So just to go back to your initial example of the checkout solution, it sounds like when they came to you guys, they were positioning themselves in the category of e-commerce solutions, which is a huge, big space. And correct, correct me if I'm wrong, right? And then they recategorized themselves into perhaps checkout solutions. Which is a tiny and, and even more specifically, they were calling themselves to some degree an e-commerce solution. Yeah. And it was obfuscating a little bit of what they were. It's like you're an API. And what we when we think about product categories, we like to think of them as like the shelf you're on in the grocery store. They should be these like quick, uh, almost like quick references for how do I know what you do? And so the idea between a category is like, say what you are so that people would go, oh, I know when I would use you. And so when you call yourself a platform, or in their case, they were saying, hey, we're this e-commerce solution for a unified e-commerce. It's like, I don't know what to do with that. When you call yourself a checkout API, you immediately go, oh, you're probably for developers and you're probably to help me with something to do with my cart experience on my site. And so that was one piece of it when we think of it. And the other thing about categories that I'll add is it doesn't so much matter what you think you are. It just matters what your prospect thinks you are. Yes. Yeah. And, and the wrong category, if I remember from April Dunford's book, which is great, by the way, you should, if you're listening to this, you should read it. <laughs> uh, I, she she kind of gives this example, if I, if I remember this correctly, where she was working for a company that was selling... I think it was like an analytic solution that could, but it had some data storage capability and they had incorrectly categorized themselves as a database. So immediately they were trying to sell this thing and people are going, yeah, but like Oracle has all these extra features. So how do you compete with Oracle? It's like, no, 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 we don't compete with Oracle. And it's like, oh, you lo- you're, you're losing, right? You're explaining you're losing. Um, so there's this hilarious thing that happens in our workshops where Everyone wants to be something different. And so there's this phrase, we hear it maybe over half the time when people are explaining their product and telling us these things. They use the phrase, like we'll, we'll kind of pinpoint like, oh, you're you're like a CRM. And they're like, no, we're so much more than a CRM. Whenever we hear that <laughs> phrase, we're so much more. We're like, you're probably gotcha. a CRM. You just gotcha. don't want to be a CRM. Yeah. And we were doing this early on. It was so funny, even when we were building Fletch, we're like, no, we're not really a consultancy. We're building this model for messaging. And it wasn't until we realized we were making that same mistake that we're finally like, no, we we are a consultancy. And we should say that because then yeah. people know what to expect from us. We're going to give advice. We're going to give frameworks. We're going to help you do something. And so we put a modifier on it of like, well, we're a consultancy that actually does the work with you, which is kind of our unique way of delivering things. Um, gotcha. Yeah. But yeah, with April Dunford's example that you brought up, they, it sounds like they ran into the same thing, and I'm recalling yeah. it from the book as well. Yeah. Uh, and so it's like, don't use that word, but only if you could back it up, only if your capability aligns to something that's different right. in a way for a customer to understand it. So finding the right category is that, is I mean, is that the, the kind of the heart of what you do in a sense? People come in and they're in a big category, and you find the subset, the small category that they should be in. And that drives everything? Is that, is that an oversimplification? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, a little bit. For us, what's really interesting is that most of our most of our clients, they don't realize it, but they they kind of know their positioning. They just can't communicate it. And so they... It, and it's funny, we spend, and we use this as like a litmus test. Most of our workshops are about 75 minutes. And we spend, especially our first workshop, really just figuring out what does the product do? We'll have them give us a demo. Who'd you build it for? Who, who do you think it's for? We start to like handle all these things. And because we work with a lot of technical companies, it's kind of the goal of like, you guys have 75 minutes to tell us what you do and who it's for. And you'd, you'd be amazed <laughs> how yeah. sometimes we don't even get there in 75 <laughs> yeah. minutes. And, and, yeah. and then it's like, okay, 
what's and what's crazy is they they do know because they're passionate they're like no you're just not getting it and so it's this whole like we're doing translations a lot of times with these technical founders and <laughs> they usually know it it's more just expressing it and so our whole program's really built around messaging and so we're we're trying to just pick out using those elements of target customer product category problem you're solving and use case and and there are circumstances certainly where we get in there and we're like oh wow you built this thing for a lot of people and a lot of use cases and that's where it's more like we need to pick one yeah. and in our model we don't pick one for them we'll never know as much about their market their customers their product what we try and do then is say hey of all these use cases that all these customers have where's there the biggest pain on one side and where is your product the best and we're kind of running this exercise and it's turbulent for them because you brought it up in the beginning they don't want to choose yeah like they have they make this thought <laughs> of like if i choose that big tam that i just raised 5 million dollars on suddenly isn't so big but because they're not marketers and they've never put together a marketing program they fail to realize that you can't actually go to market to your tam you just can't no, no, you, you have, can't. You have to no. go to market at such a specific level. And so a lot of times we're just, we're there for moral support of like, hey, it's okay. You can make this decision. <laughs> and then once we make the decision, then we're into that translation yeah. mode where it's like, okay, let's break this out. And the way we do that, the next step in our model and messaging is like, okay, if this is the use case that this person has, and this is the problem they have with it, what we do is we're trying to contrast how are they addressing that use case today versus how would they do that in your product? And in the Delta is your value. You're just trying to put a spotlight on, here's your current way. It's got this limitation. It creates a problem. And then here's the new way that we want to oh, present to you. Okay. So that, that actually gets to a question I was going to ask about messaging, which was, is there a structure to it? How do you, how do you come up with the message? Um, but I think you've, you've kind of touched on it, right? You find this, Value delta. It's exactly that, that right. It, right. Okay. And we build our models around that. The, the piece here, I think one of the powerful things about our service, or what we think it's powerful, because we've worked on a lot of marketing programs in the past, is that what our model lets you do is work on just messaging without dealing with copywriting. And after you've already solved for positioning, what tends to happen if you don't know what you're doing is you're you come at it from an asset standpoint. You say, hey, I need a sales deck or hey, I need this website. And you start writing the website. And so what, what you're doing there is you're trying to write copy when you haven't even figured out what you're going to say, messaging, when you haven't even figured out who oh. you're going to say it to, positioning. And so we're, we're stripping out the fundamental phases of like, hey, we've already solved for positioning. We know who you're for. We know the use case you're going to solve. Now let's talk about messaging, which is what you're going to say. And it's different than how you're going to say it. And so when we're doing that messaging piece, and, and it is that delta of, hey, let's break down what they're doing today, what limitations of doing it that way are, and what problems they run into. And it's boring language. It is not sexy at all by design. And then we even talk about their product in the same boring way. We introduce what we call capabilities, features, and benefits. Capabilities is how your product carries out that use case. It's usually a set of steps. And capabilities are connected to a feature. And features are the things that power the capability. And developers, uh, don't hate me developers, but you guys love your features. You guys love oh, your yeah. technology. Yeah. And it, I don't blame you. We're human. You guys spend your worlds in really complex technology and feature land. But I'm sorry to say, your customers don't care about your features. They care about the capabilities that the features create for them. And so it's okay to mention features, but at, on an island, they are not valuable at all. And then the last piece of our model, that benefit piece, that's the outcome of using that capability and feature. And this is the other thing people get wrong. They jump to the, we call it like third and fourth order benefit. They jump to the now make more money or get more customers. No product on the planet has a button that gets you more customers. So when we talk about benefits from a product marketing perspective, it's simply the state change or the improvement of that specific thing. And so we'll use like a simple example that we use in a lot of our, our pieces is uh, Calendly. Use case, scheduling meetings, limitation of the current way well, and problem. Well, I got to send all these back and forth messages to find mm -hmm. a time. 
capability with Calendly is you can create a link that has your uh, availability in it and send it and book a meeting in one message. Uh, and then the benefit is like you can book meetings faster. That's it. What what tempts a lot of people is they would say like, oh, for salespeople, if they're booking meetings faster, they can book more meetings. And if they book more meetings, they can maybe get more pipeline. If they get more pipeline, they can maybe close more deals. And so there's this temptation to be like, use Calendly. <laughs> You'll grow your pipeline and revenue. And it's like, eh. Calendly just lets you book meetings faster. That's it. That's the benefit. Wow. Um, I have a colleague who, uh, and she will be listening to this, uh, He's gonna who's gonna uh, come back to me on this because I asked her to write a bunch of case studies and without any positioning at all. Yeah. And that we this goes, I think, even before uh, or, we jumped on the show, we were talking yeah. about turning on marketing. Uh, and that's not a real thing. Marketing that's what I tried to do. Be yeah. Just as thoughtful about as your product. And uh, we've seen it a lot where a company raises money and they're like, hey, we're we're now ready to go to market. I'm going to hire some copywriters. I'm going to hire some content marketers. It's like, well, do you have someone who's orchestrating them? And when I say orchestrate, I really look back to like, is there a founder that's going to own marketing? Is there a product marketer that's going to be the bridge between product and marketing much like a founder would? And most of the times, no. And that's kind of that scenario of like, we built it. It's cool. Create stuff. And... You know, it might work a little bit, but it's definitely not going to work at scale. It's going to be pretty low, low resonance is likely outcome. One thing that occurs to me in this discussion, and I'm just going to bring it back to the world of developer relations. Uh, it's kind of notorious in our world that measurement is really hard. And also, we've mentioned this before, that uh, people get a lot of burnout because they're asked to do all of these different things, right? And there's this kind of cliche of the pillars of developer relations are code, community, and content, and you're supposed to do all three. Um, but if I think about it in this with this framework, um, part of the problem around measurement is that if you don't have a positioning, you don't know what to measure, so you end up me- you end up measuring clickbait or other sort of nonsense or leads, yeah. right? <laughs> and if you try to you try to if you try to sell directly to developers in your developer relations material, that's a that's a total failure. Um, and then the burnout on the burnout side of things again, you're you're just throwing content at a wall, um, and you're trying to you're trying to hit everything as opposed to choosing this one specific seemingly small benefit, um, and just focusing on that as as something that kind of pulls the content into a into a framework. Uh, what you're hitting at there, yeah. I think, Richard, to me, when you talk about measurement and positioning, measurement and messaging, and even developer relations, like what, how do we measure whether we're being effective in our developer community and what right, we're doing right. with developer content? And the, the the real answer is it's not very measurable. The only things we have to measure when you talk about measuring clickbait is, that, well, there's two things. We have a lagging measurement of are we making money? But that is so far downstream. And when you're talking developers, yes. I mean, you're talking yeah. six, 18 months, sometimes even longer before you oh, monetize yeah. some of the activities you're doing. So that's just too late. And and what we see, and it unfortunately happened a lot, is like people start to invest in marketing and they expect a quick win. No, marketing is a long-term investment. And it's unfortunate because the consistency in marketing is what makes it work. <laughs> <laughs> so people, yeah. I see it too much and it, it makes me so sad of like they give up just as they're probably finding their way and getting momentum. And yeah. so when we think about what do you measure, uh, and there's some people, and I would say even on a developer sense that are uncomfortable with this, but a lot of the measurement is qualitative. And so the the example I have is really just with Fletch and how we built it because we we've built our entire go-to-market around content marketing on LinkedIn. That's all we do. And... How do we measure that? Sure, we could look at the vanity of is our audience growing, um, but there's more things you can measure when you think about qualitative. Do people care about what you're talking about? Are the comments thoughtful? Are they asking more questions? Are they coming to us for additional reasons? Right? It, it, you start to get these signals of like we're really on to something. And then I will say there there is a point where you have to start taking that inbound intrigue. 
and turning it into value for your company, either bringing the pe- these developers in to a closer community or bringing them in and actually getting them using or trying the product. And so for us at Fletch, like that's what we experience. Early days in our content marketing, our posts, crickets, nobody responded, very few likes. As we continue to beat the drum and found things that people care about, they would then be like, oh, I, this is interesting. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with this? And we use that feedback to ultimately to build a better service. And so now, you know, we fast forward, we're, we're about 12 months into our, our journey. We have pretty good measurement, but it all started qualitative. Like, do we feel like we're on the right track to continue to invest in what we were doing? And, and so like, when I think about if I were to like give advice to the developer relations is like, if you really believe in what you're building, community led growth is is probably a primary lever for developer tools. And you just have to recognize that it is that long-term game. Don't look at it in terms of weeks and months. Seriously, look at it in terms of years. Otherwise, you're going to kid yourself with like, and you're going to try and you're going to water down the content. You're going to do things to try and make a quick buck or get some quick success. And it's actually going to hurt the potential impact of staying the course and trying to add value. Gotcha. Uh, Yeah, I think that is quite a valuable contribution, Rob. The especially the idea of well, the consistency, but also taking qualitative measurements seriously. Um, And like you said, this is stuff like the the thoughtfulness of comments and reactions and that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't believe anybody is doing that in a formal way. Uh, I know there are founders for you. Yeah, in the develop in developer advocate space, because as much as we work with dev companies, these developer advocates, I probably don't know as much about. You made a comment earlier on that there are, they're usually a single person running a developer community. How common is that? And because the the piece that intrigues me about that, when I think about why were we able to listen and understand those qualitative insights, having a partner very important. And so this goes into just to from an investment standpoint, having a single person stand up developer advocate uh, developer communities for your product, probably not going to work, right? Yeah. You need to build some like, and there's there's learnings in the back and forth. And, and I can remember even earlier in my career doing different marketing stuff where like, when you're on your own, you're going to be overwhelmed with data, even all those qualitative insights, you probably can't make heads or tails of them. And there's value in just being able to talk to someone else who's in the same space as you. And they're like, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? You can sharpen your thinking to the point of like, oh yeah, we really are onto something or, oh, we are making a mistake. We should pivot the strategy. So sorry for the long-winded, but... No, it's a good question. It's How are people approaching these? Multiple? Solo? Yeah. It's very common because if you you think about the structure of a lot of uh, tech startups, right? There's a founding team to begin with. And often they can be quite successful because one or more of the founders is very active and is almost a developer advocate or is indeed one or they were an open source maintainer they speak at conferences this stuff is second nature they do it without thinking uh they have an intuitive feel for the qualitative measurements so it's just it's just part of founding the company um but then you you know then you get your seed and you start doing things like hiring a cmo that type of stuff as a founder you get busy with big clients, all that all that sort of thing. So you're mm-hmm. going, oh, right. So I'm not doing as much developer relations as I used to. Okay, we need a DevRel now. Yeah. So, so they say to the CMO, who might not actually have much experience leading somebody like that, oh, we need a DevRel role. So hire a DevRel. Yeah. Um, and then it can be random. You know, are there somebody who's community focused? <laughs> or was it a, is it a coder? Um, you know, yeah. or is it somebody who's, who's good at technical writing? Uh, that's just a crap sheet because <laughs> it could be anything, right? Um, and you so kind of need that person that could do a little bit of it all. And that's what the founder was so good yeah. at doing. And the founder could you do, do it, need right? You need to have like belief, right? You need to, in your peer group, they need to holistically buy into what you're doing. And and uh, you guys will definitely understand this. Like developers, they hate the idea that they're being sold to. And so if even marketed to, you, you can't even market to developers. <laughs> Right. Yeah, no no chance. Uh, and yeah. and that's the thing. The the what you have to trick them. You have to basically drop a developer in and have them do marketing activities. Yeah. And nested in this, and this is I, even if in non-developer scenarios, I think a lot of companies get this wrong. Marketing isn't about talking about your product. 
uh, and I should say, isn't just about, because certainly it's part of it. But in my opinion, if I were to put a percentage, only 20% of marketing should talk about your product. The other 80% should be helping your customers before they become your customers. And that's where these developer advocates get in the weeds, shoulder to shoulder, give before you can ask for something. And they'll they'll let you sell them sort of, right? They'll get to the point of like, yeah. oh my God, you helped me with this problem. Now I have this other problem. And that's where it's like, oh, that problem, actually our product solves that. You want to take a look? And before right. you know it, they're delivering a marketing message in disguise. <laughs> I mean, and that is developer relations, literally in a nutshell, right? Uh, yeah. good, good observation. Um, to, so, so to kind of complete the answer to your question, uh, so you do a seed round and then the company stays in, in kind of a stasis of 10 to 20 people, the single DevRel, maybe for a year to 18 months. And if things work out, then you do a, an A uh, and maybe you start building a little team, but maybe you get another DevRel or maybe maybe three, but they're still reporting to the CMO. It's only when you're really, really big You've gone through B and C, D rounds, right? You, you you reach the size of MongoDB, let's say, that there's a head of developer relations and they have a team and the organization has worked out who they report to and that sort of stuff, right? Um, but there's so a very long phase, right? This is a very long phase where yeah. uh, you're kind of on your own. Yeah. Um, and that's the, it comes back to what we believe. And there's a stat um, that founders usually what you see is there's a builder and a seller uh, from a startup founder standpoint which makes a lot of sense in the early days it's very you're being really scrappy you're interacting face to face and we we take the view of like hey sure builder and seller is fine but builder seller marketer is the most powerful combination as far as navigating seed series a because when you make that investment early just like any investment the earlier you make it the more it's going to compound and so we you'd be surprised some of the companies that come to us and i think it's pretty close to the narrative you just said they're at their a and they've just raised 20 30 million dollars and they're trying to turn on marketing and we're like oof <laughs> you guys are yeah you guys are 5 years behind like where you should be and and these are in some cases these have even been leaders in emerging spaces and now they're at this point where their their lunch is getting eaten by people who invested yeah. in it early and were lagging behind and now are just their messaging is very targeted. They've got their segmentation down. They know what it takes. <laughs> I don't know if they'll ever recover. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. That is so true. I mean, I, I can think of. Um, it's interesting that you you talk about founding teams because I can think of Intercom and HubSpot, probably good examples of companies that had a, a marketer from day one, and that, yeah. and what they did was kind of critical to the success of that company. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure you would have other examples. Um, yeah. And part of that is because salespeople are... Um, and I used to be a salesperson, so I, I feel sort of comfortable saying this. Hit the quote. Go for it. Go for it. So yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Work with a, we work with a lot of CROs and early salespeople, and you know they're usually pretty abrupt. They'll sell anything to anyone, which great for traction. Great yeah. for, hey, this quarter's metrics. They're coin-operated. Oh yeah, really I, hey, bad. I was gonna, yeah, I, was, I love that. Really phrase. bad for long-term <laughs> success because, uh, <laughs> yeah. and I've seen it firsthand at growing startups where, when you close deals at all costs, which in the again in the beginning you have to do this, it eventually pulls your product apart, and you will hit a very real growth wall yeah. because the companies that are actually worth big, you know, the billion-dollar valuations, they're the ones who figured out how to sell at scale. And I don't care how talented your VP of sales, your CRO is, they usually can't solve for selling at scale. They could solve for selling repeatedly and developing a process and a team to do that. They they generally don't have the the deep, uh, really knowledge tactics uh, and activities that are required to support true high growth. And that's what startups are all about. Yeah. Uh, wow. It's not often that you get a guest... <laughs> They basically go, oh, I think I better just clear my schedule tomorrow and go back to square one. <laughs> I hope that's a good thing, Richard. Is, yeah, no, no, it is. I mean, uh, yeah, I feel so, I, I feel guilty because, I mean, I, you know, I, I asked you to be a guest because I know this stuff is important, but actually doing it, actually. Here's doing a reprieve. It. 
I'm, I'm a product marketer. We're building our business. We make all the same mistakes. I think it's, I think the, the real differences, the ones who, who figured out the quickest will win. So you're going to make every mistake, even if you know what you're doing. I know. And so don't be like, Oh, I made the mistake. Just be like, okay, this is the mistake. I'm going to fix it. And, yeah. uh, the founders that are able to shorten those cycles, those are the winners. Yeah. Let's end on, uh, with a personal question. Um, so how did you end up doing this? What's your personal yeah, journey to, to founding this um, consultancy? Like many folks in the product realm, I've taken a very non-linear line. Uh, I actually got my start in engineering. And so I was working as a implementation engineer for a software company in the healthcare space about 15 years ago, spent some time in really solution consulting, and then moved over to the sales side. So I put a sales hat on, was a sales engineer, uh, then became a sales rep at a growing software company. Uh, that eventually sold to Vista Equity Group. And by the time I left there, I was running a small sales team. And I was like, you know, the sales thing, I, only, I really only did it to learn the ropes a bit. I got yeah. some advice from a mentor of like, you should go see what it's like to own revenue. Uh, and that's where I got really deep into product marketing. And so when I left there, um, really for the past five, really five to seven years, product marketing has been my focus. I've kind of taken the tours of duty around, always been around SaaS. And I think that's giving me good perspective of how to actually do product marketing well, how it's going to implicate sales, how marketing should be handling it, what it's going to mean for the product roadmap as well with the PMs. And so the, the actual story is uh, I was working at a, uh, we called ourselves a digital product studio with my now partner, Anthony Pieri. And we were in the product strategy arm doing product management, product marketing as a service. Like we drop in usually to series C plus companies as a, as your, product marketer for hire. And we had an appetite for working with early stage startups, but we fundamentally looked at, we started looking at a lot of websites and messaging and everyone was doing it terribly. And so we knew there was a problem, but the issue is with early stage companies, they don't have any money. And so we're like, well, the people who need this help the most can't afford us. And so we started looking at it like, how could we actually build a service that could help solve these product marketing issues? that doesn't crush their runway where they would actually buy. And ultimately what that meant is getting very specific. We, when we started, it was product marketing for startups. Yeah. Then it was yeah. positioning and messaging. And we're like, that's a big service area. We're like, then we're just going to do messaging, but we still have to touch on positioning. And then we were just going to do website messaging. And every step down we took in layers of specificity, our service got better. Our leads became more voluminous. Our posts became more resonant because we were actually solving a specific problem. And so flash forward, you know, we're 12 months into what we're doing, building this messaging model. And uh, here we are today now, we have worked with 75 B2B SaaS companies, um, likely to work with another 150 plus next year. And yeah, that's the amazing. And, it, and it's all about getting more and more specific. Yeah, Rob, that's pretty inspiring. Um, and the wheels are, the gears are going in my head. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I'll cut you a check for some options. <laughs> if it works. Uh, thank you All so right, much. This has been uh, fabulous. Really, really useful. Uh, great talk. Great talk. Thank you so much, Rob. You're very welcome. And thank you. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it as well. Wonderful. Goodbye. Goodbye. Cheers. You can find the transcript of this podcast and any links mentioned on our podcast page at voxgeek.com slash podcast. Subscribe for weekly editions where we talk to the people who make the developer community work. For even more, read our newsletter. You can subscribe at voxgeek.com slash newsletter or follow our Twitter at voxgeek. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.